0: with confidence drawn near to the throne of grace that we may mercy and find grace to in time. This morning we are going to continue uh, our pursuit to understand this great book of Hebrews and let God speak to us through it. We are in chapter three verses one through six. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things, which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope, firm until the end. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts to your word, to the truth of it. Our instinct is not um, yours. And we ask that you would reveal truth To all of us who care deeply about your word, who trust in it, may you allow me today to apply it to our hearts and our minds as I speak it, as I um, point to it. And for those of us that do not trust your word and don't know what they believe and are asking and hoping for meaning, I ask that the words that I speak in this hour would open them to truth and a serious consideration of Jesus. Turn us to you. Draw us to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I got good news and I got bad news. The bad news, of course, I'll start with, is that we have a lot of sinners that have uh, joined us today in church. Yay. (laughs) Ideally, they are not sinning as we speak, but really that's the backstory of everybody that you know. There are sexual sinners in this room. There are lying sinners in this room. Parent disobeying and dishonoring sinners in this room. There are killing sinners in this room. Greedy and covetous, boastful and proud sinners in this room. There are fearful and anxious sinners in this room, racked by doubt and cynicism. There are sinners in this room, and there's nobody else in this room. And even worse news, unless unless something in our experience gives us what we need, nobody is going to get to God. And what we need is something that explains who God is, who we are, what the relationship is like. How can it be made right? And then something to actually make it right for us. Something to get get us out of this awful predicament of sin and separation with God. So we need a revelation from God and we need reconciliation with God. We have two big needs. We We need a word from God and we need a way to God. And these two needs put everything else in the shadow. We need to hear from him because without that, we're totally in the dark as to who we are, who he is, what we should do with this life. And we need a way to him because the guiltiness that we all feel, no one here has lived up to our own standards, let alone God's standards the guiltiness that we feel is going to leave us in separation, darkness, death, and torment. We need to find a way home through our guilt to God or we're going to spend eternity in that separation. That's pretty bad news. And most of y'all already agree with that, like theologically, philosophically. Look around. Look at the stories that we say, the songs that we sing. Let's take film and music, for instance it's pretty much that we're real sad in our human condition or that we have war and conflict with one another. In fact, when I turn on a, a movie or rent a movie or whatever, if there's not war and conflict with one another, I'm kind of bored. That's like generally what our state is. And sometimes maybe there's a depiction of how we fall in love. But then it crashes and burns in 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 the depictions of how our human experience actually is. That usually makes for a pretty good song, I think. We need a word from God, and we need a way to him because of how we are in our human condition. The good news, verse 1 of our text, addresses these two needs. Let's read it again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Heavenly meaning it's from God. Calling meaning it's bringing us to God. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. And that's great news. We got a word that has come from heaven, and it is calling us back to heaven. There has been a word that has arrived, and it's not a word that leaves us here. It calls us home. It makes a way. Amen? And so we're done. Have a great week. You're welcome. It's not... It's like it's done for us, but it's not that we're done. The way has been laid, the price has been paid. God has handled it, not you. And so now you, it says in the passage that we're considering, consider Jesus. Do you see that? Don't miss those two words. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And that's what we're doing right now. That's what I want my life to be about. That's what the life of the believer is all about. We live to help people consider Jesus. And that's all that I wanna do is to live to help people consider the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And so for the next 20 minutes, I would say, please, I I implore you to consider Jesus. This is what our church programming, all of it, I hope, is all about, our events. And if not, let's close up shop. Because he is the thing. He is the life. He is the truth. He is the way. Everything the worship ministry, the teaching, the youth ministries, all of the ministry that takes place in our 25 community groups, even as we gather in homes, is all about this the confession of sin, the breaking of bread, studying of God's word. The very fabric of our relationships with one another is spurring, is about spurring one another on to consider Jesus. And it's not just, hmm, ponder Jesus. Like, kind of think about it. The Greek translation for consider here is one word, kato noeo. And this one word, kato noeo, comes from two words. Noeo means to exercise the mind. The prefix kata in the Greek is the intensity of the word. So noeo is to think about. Just think about it. But kato noeo is fix your thoughts intensely upon it, grab hold of it in this case, of who Jesus really is, as the writer urges us, rather than just your own thoughts. Because our thoughts are wicked. They betray us. Our thoughts are needing of being reined in. Our thoughts are mixed up in our experiences, how our week went, what side of the bed you woke up on, our family of origin, cultural narratives. So we need to master our thoughts in accordance with the truth, who is, which is Jesus 2 Corinthians, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's everybody. So of course, this passage is not just for unbelievers to consider Jesus. This, This book is written to Christians, Hebrew Christians. Again and again and again in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, Christians are pleaded with to consider Jesus for the very simple reason that Hebrews has for us in the prior chapter, chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The age is full of distraction, just in the time that you came here. How many social media updates might you have access to? Calendar, invites, emails, texts, calls. Not only that, but our mind, our very mind, this is just 30 minutes, what we're doing here. That's, that's the time, uh, that's the length of a children's cartoon. Come on, we can do this, church. And yet our minds, are they churn with distraction. And the age is full of clever, virtue signaling, self-glorification. That sounds kind of harsh, I know. But people of God consider Jesus because the age... The world we live in is urging us to consider and experience just about everything else but Jesus. You could even be a devout Muslim, and that's kind of cool now, but a charismatic Bible-believing Christian, you're the worst. But even amidst all this, Christians, you know what we do sometimes? Rather than focusing on Christ and guarding our minds, Do you ever maybe like on a vacation or maybe for a whole like season of your life, do you ever just go, I don't have to think about being alive and true and upright and focused in my faith in Christ, but rather for a time, I can just drift. That's a dangerous game to play. There's someone very close to me, just as a brief example, um, That I know that their experience was falling away from Christ. I could see it coming from like years away. They were out of the practice of considering Jesus. And yet, in their experience, as they told it, they said, You know, one day I woke up and it was just clear as day, clear as a bell. I no longer had faith, it was there before. But now I just can't seem to care. I don't know where it went. And so now I can't believe. I just can't seem to care at all. So with our day and age as a backdrop, scripture urges us, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. These two roles of Jesus here in verse one correspond exactly to our two needs that we spoke of earlier. The apostle and the high priest. We need a word from God. We need a way to God. Apostle means sent one, aposteo in the Greek. We have earthly apostles who represent Jesus to the nations. We have heavenly apostles who represent God to earth. Jesus is God's apostle from heaven to earth. So he has come and he is the word that we need. It's awesome. And he's our high priest as well. And this is all couched in the the Jewish worldview. A high priest was the go-between, the intermediary between God and the people who offer sacrifices to appease the wrath of this holy God, to reconcile this God with a sinful people so that there can be friendship instead instead of enmity. And that's what he brought. That's what Jesus brought. He brought the heavenly calling, which we have, and he has made the heavenly calling effective through his death and resurrection and now intercedes for us on our behalf. Jesus is the answer to the two needs, so consider him. The book of Hebrews is just one great, glorious consideration of Jesus. There is more about Jesus than you could ever consider in all your life. You will never exhaust Jesus. You will keep on turning your attention to Jesus until you die, and then you'll start again considering this Jesus forever and ever. And you will never run out of something new and fresh and glorious to consider about Jesus. In chapter one of this book, we considered his superiority to angels. He made the angels just to run errands in the world. Chapter one, verse 14. In chapter two, his superior superiority was shown in the way that he fulfills Psalm 8 and that all things were made in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews claims that Jesus is superior to the temple system, the angels, the prophets, the people. But the author is not saying these things are bad. He's saying that Jesus is better, superior. And we can understand that. Like, Leon's is good. Cop's is better. Oh. How to start a church split in Wisconsin. But this this Hebrew community, in actuality, is not anti-Jesus, but rather they're undergoing heavy persecution for their worship of Jesus. So it'd be easy, if you were them, to start wondering, isn't it all the same God, the various paths we're expressing? Can't they lead us to the same loving God? Is God not big enough for that? So this distinction of Jesus It matters to the Hebrews and it matters today. The claims and station of Jesus are different and they are mutually exclusive to other paths and they are superior. And it's not Christianity without understanding that. And I I studied in my undergrad comparative world religions. Christianity is something and it is different, and the claims of it are mutually exclusive and different, and I believe superior to the other claims of other worldviews. And so what this morning should we consider about Jesus by way of his superiority? And the answer is he's superior to Moses. That's where our text finds us. Let's look at this briefly. The difference between Moses and Jesus is introduced in verse two by saying they're the same in one important respect. It says Jesus was faithful to him to God the Father who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So he begins by saying they were both faithful as they deal with the people, the house of God. This is not a put down for Moses in this text. In fact, this is a quote in verse two, a quote from another place in the Bible, in Rome, uh, Numbers 12, verse six. Hear now my word, says the Lord, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall shall speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses was in a class by himself among the prophets. God said, I deal with prophets in dark sayings, visions, dreams. I deal with Moses mouth to mouth, face to face, Now consider Jesus in relation to this one-of-a-kind Moses. That's the point here. It's not a put-down for Moses. It's an elevation for Moses and then a super elevation for Jesus over Moses. Let's look at the two superiorities of Jesus over Moses. First one is in verse three. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So so Jesus is worthy of, of more glory than Moses. It's a comparative glory. So Moses has some glory. Glory seems like an ancient kind of intangible thing. And yet we ascribe honor and glory all the time. Take Giannis onto Tecumpo. This city ascribes him glory, does it not? Not only because of his stats, because of his shoulders, because he brought home the trophy for us. But he also gets glory from the people of the land because of his humble beginnings. And that he stays humble. He remains humble, does he not? Milwaukee praises him more for it. We ascribe him a higher glory because of the way he is. And if you've ever been to a Bucks game, a live Bucks game as he enters our field of vision, it's all the more uproarious or Giannis Antetokounmpo. You ever watched a World Cup? Or been to a rock concert? Or the lead singer finally enters your field of vision? People give glory and honor and praise to all kinds of people. You don't need to go to school to learn that. We know how to ascribe glory to somebody. It's written on our hearts to do so. And this text says, Jesus is more glorious than Moses, and then it gives an amazing reason. He Jesus is counted more worthy is counted worthy of more glory than Moses just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. You get that? What he's saying is Jesus compares to the builder of the house. Moses compares to the house. Moses is part of the body, part of the people of God, part of the household of God. Therefore, Jesus is more glorious than Moses in the same way that a builder is superior to a house, because he made the house. Jesus made Moses. That's why he's superior. He created Moses. So picture this. You got Giannis, Pastor Tommy, Trump, Biden, and your mom. All sitting in the same room, and Jesus is there too. I know, it's weird. It's heavily weird already just give me a minute. Actually, let's take away Giannis for a moment. So it's just your mom, Trump, Biden, and Tommy, and Jesus. Still weird. And one says, look at the stock market when I was in charge. I'm the greatest. And the other one says, well, the soul of America needs healing, and I'm doing that, so I'm the greatest. You feeling triggered yet? And then your mom says, well, I work two jobs and took care of the kids, so I'm the great one. Or maybe she says, I stayed home actually with the kids, and that is worthy of the most glory, and I I cooked organic food in the 70s. So that's very different. And then Pastor Tommy says, well, all you politicians, you're liars, and I planted Mercy Hill Church, and that's doing better than your kids, mom. And then it gets quiet, and the other guy's just sitting there. I can make fun of Tommy when he's not here. It's pretty fun. And then it gets quiet, and the other guy in the corner is just sitting there, and they all look over, and they say, well, what about you? What are you thinking? And he said, well, I made all of you, so I'm the greatest. Which is exactly right. He made everything, every molecule, every fiber of the universe. It's just true. He's superior to surgeons, lawyers, parents, athletes, teachers, pastors, and anybody else because he made them, even Moses. And this next part is really cool to me because I'm kind of a nerd. Immediately following this verse, verse three, concerning Jesus building the house, there's verse four, which says, the builder of all things is God. So we have a syllogism, folks. Premise one, Jesus built the house. Premise two, God builds all things. What's the conclusion? Jesus is God. The book of Hebrews has a very high view of Jesus. Again, because that matters to the Hebrew people and it matters, I believe, to us today. We see it here. We saw it right out of the gate in this letter to the Hebrew Christians in chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And verses five and six, they're getting at the same thing, just a different angle. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. So Moses is pictured as a servant in the house and Jesus is pictured as a son over the house. What's the difference between a servant and a son? By inheritance, the son owns the house, has proxy lordship over the house and the son provides out of his wealth for the people in the house and Moses doesn't do any of that. He doesn't own the house, he's part of the house. He's not Lord of the house. He follows the master of the house. He doesn't provide for the house. He depends upon the riches of the house for his daily provisions. And so Jesus is superior to Moses as the son over a house is superior to the servant in his house. So consider Jesus. It's not all paths lead to God. Jesus does because he is God. So he can make a path. And finally, in the latter half of verse six, the scripture does something amazing for us. The author turns our attention away from the people of Israel, whom he's been talking about, this house that Moses served. And now he says, whose house we are. And by implication, 30 generations later, we say we, we are God's house. Church of this age, we, Mercy Hill, this morning, are God's house, if we hold fast to our confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. You are the house of God, church. His workmanship evidenced in your confidence, hope, and trust in Jesus. To be Christian is to hope in Jesus. It's the first step you take as a baby Christian. What do you do with Jesus? You trust him. Was he a real person on earth? Did he really die on a cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Not just feelings, but historical realities you press into and let shape all the facets and possibilities of your life. It's the first step. I believe in you. You're the Lord. And I place my confidence and hope of all things in you. I believe in your kingdom. I believe in your power. I believe it's real and I wanna be part of it, of your advancing kingdom. Would you let me? Jesus. It's the first step. And it's the step for you also today, veteran Christians. Becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen the same way. Being a Christian and becoming a Christian happen by hoping in Jesus. I trust you. I believe in you. You are who you say. Day one, day 8,000, day today. We are Christians as we hope and trust and place our confidence in Him. But have you, and consider this this morning, but have you been jaded by the age? A little. Maybe too much. Have you drifted? Have you been marred with worry? Unable to truly hope in Jesus, let alone place your confidence in him with total abandon? Have you ever been able to? You can go ahead right now and ask yourself that question. Where is your hope? Do you hope in money? Is your hope deep in you, in advancing your business? Which is fine to try to do that. But the cornerstone of your hope, do you place your hope in luck, perhaps? Do you hope in clever investments? Or maybe you don't hope much in anything anymore. And so it's escapism for you food, sex, alcohol, weed, media. Maybe it's just hope that your family likes you. It's not bad. That your kids like you. It's not bad but is that really the foundation of your hope? And is that what scripture is bringing you to, calling you today? The book of Hebrews issues a warning for us. Don't just drift, rather consider Jesus a greater hope. But some of us, and I I believe this is true, some of us today, we have not ever really been able to place like the baseline, the resting state of our hope in him because we don't really trust him. You may ascend to beliefs about him historically to a certain degree, but the person of Jesus, like as your actual soul, can communicate, pray to the Father in the Spirit through Jesus. Many of us don't even know how to trust him, let alone draw near to him. So we don't draw near to him. Allow me to encourage you this morning. To consider Jesus, for he is faithful, I believe. And he has shown himself to be faithful, truly to us. This whole morning started with a statement, Jesus was faithful, in verse two. And when we consider the past faithfulness of Jesus, it makes us understand that he's gonna be faithful. He's gonna continue to be faithful. Let us consider how faithful Jesus was his entire life. He was faithful as a child, being obedient to his parents. He was faithful in his youth, working as a carpenter. He was faithful at the beginning of his ministry to submit to baptism. He was faithful to remain innocent in the face of every temptation, every temptation. He was faithful to face all sorts of opposition, torment, vitriol from people. He was faithful to teach and train those whom the Father had given him. All of his disciples for all those years, of his ministry. He was faithful to offer repentance and restoration throughout his ministry. He was faithful to even undertake the agony of the cross. A Roman electric chair, basically. First century form of torture. He was faithful to take care of his mother. Even to the end, he was faithful to rise from the dead just as he promised to. He was faithful to send his spirit to us that he would be with us and empower us. He promised to do that. And he will be faithful to all his people, even to the end. And what a beautiful thing it is to to place our confidence in Jesus in, in an age of such utter unfaithfulness. Our commitments, our contracts, relationships, unless people can see what's immediately good for them, they bail. We flake. It's a hallmark of our age how rare it is in a world today to have people say, I'm going to be faithful to this or that, even though it's not so pleasant for me. I don't see an immediate benefit. I don't see, maybe it even hurts your bottom line or your pocketbook. And so I glorify Jesus when I look at his life and how he lived it and how he's perfectly faithful to the Father and all that the Father called him to be. So much different than the usual heroes of our age that we truly do glory in. In the athletic world, the religious world, business world, political and celebrity world, stability and faithfulness are in short supply. But Jesus, he is different. He is making all things new. And someday, my friends, he will fulfill all of his promises to us. I believe that. I place my hope and confidence in it. You know, something Pastor Tommy um, argued or told me uh, on, a, on a jet plane one time before I worked here. We were traveling through Rwanda together, and he just said, Listen, Jesse, and he was probably bored of my arguments at that point. He said, Listen, Jesse, <laughs> um, everyone chooses a way. I'm going with the Bible. And that just struck me. I'm like, totally, Whatever, whatever I'm arguing, it is a way that I'm forming. It is a way that I'm choosing. And what I'm arguing is in opposition to the Bible. And it just struck me. I just love the simplicity of that. He is faithful. And with my life, I can say in honesty, I'm just going with the Bible in this brevity, in this vapor of a life, then I do trust him and you can too. And I want to communicate that to you as you consider Jesus. He is the owner, maker, and provider of his house, which is us, who are us. He has made us a people and he will watch over his house. His eye will be upon his house. You can trust him. If you are coming here today and you go, I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I just want to say you can. And I'm riffing off not only the Bible, but everything I've experienced in this life. When people press into Jesus, there's fruit. There's life. He loves his house. No son ever takes a vacation and says, I don't care what becomes of my house. He's vigilant over his house. God will care for us and provide for us as we are his house. So consider him and draw near to this Jesus and hold fast, my Christian brothers and sisters, this morning in the faith as we participate in this heavenly calling. For we have received the word and so we place our confidence in him and he will lead us home. Thanks be to Christ Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our heavenly calling. Let us pray. Jesus, you are greater. You are greater than any cynicism that we have constructed, any boundary or version of Christianity that we have placed around you. You are greater. You are greater than the cynicism of this culture and this world. We trust in your ability to keep your grip on us. So with at least a mustard seed of faith, we place our confidence in you Would you replace any falsehood or drifting in us? Enliven your people today and bring a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to draw near to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.